this is Mikhail Bjorkendriesen, the assistant men's golf coach at Baylor speaking. You're listening to the Better Than I Found It podcast. And today is a topic episode. Uh, coach McGraw and I sat down for about 45 minutes. And the title of the episode is Health and Wellness. It really revolves around a few areas of coaching specifically. So this one's uh, more for the coaches out there, but could be helpful to some parents and maybe other people as well listening. I think one of the more impressive things about Coach is the shape he's been able to stay in throughout his coaching career. As he's uh, labeled it himself, he's kind of in the November of his coaching career, so to speak. Yet he has more energy than any other coach in the profession. And uh, he's always on time, he's never disheveled. He has the energy to withstand long days. I'd argue he has the longest days in college golf because he starts him very early and uh, never leaves a player hanging ever. And so I have a lot of respect for that as a young coach myself. And so I got Coach McGraw to unpack a few things about how he thinks about taking care of his health and wellness throughout the year. And then more specifically, this time of year we're in right now, the off season when we send our players away and don't see him for about 50 days. What does he do to kind of recharge the batteries and, and return an improved version of himself? So it was a good conversation with Coach. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed the lesson. Coach, uh, how's it going this morning? It's going great this morning, Mikhail. How are you doing? I'm uh, doing fantastic. Looking forward to uh, getting a little bit of the holiday season in. We don't know exactly when this episode's going to be released, but we're recording this the week before Thanksgiving. And so our players have kind of left uh, for their separate homes, wherever they're from. And uh, they're going to take finals remotely this year because of the COVID situation. And so um, you and I are going to record an episode here, Coach. We've done one topic episode uh, before when the podcast was pretty new. That one was called Lifelong Learner. And so we're going to do another topic episode. It's something uh, you and I, mostly you, have prepared Um, And uh, the, I guess, title for this one will be Health and Wellness. But um, let me tee you up a little bit, okay, before we get into this episode. Certainly. We have just sent our players home, right, like we do every year. We just had individual meetings with all of them. We kind of recapped the fall. You know, we broke down their games and uh, we broke down what they're going to play over the break, what we're going to work on, how we're going to get better as players and as a team, right? And so... Uh, the question is then, what are we going to do as coaches? And you and I have talked quite a bit about this. We have pretty much 50 days till we see our players again. And we've told all our players to be be better, right, when we see them. We tell them that every year. And then- every year. They need to be better. But you and I need to be better as well. And so I guess I want this episode to start talking about um, how we're going to use those 50 days and how you've spent those days during your career, during your 35 years of coaching. Um, and I want to kind of angle it towards health and wellness, how you're taking care of your body, um, your nutrition, kind of get recentered again and, and energized for the spring. So everybody knows that you've stayed in shape throughout your coaching career. There's been tons of gut punches that, that you've asked people to do for your, <laughs> for your tight abs. Um, and you've also stayed in shape uh, with some running and stuff. But 
take us back, Coach, to kind of when this started for you a little bit and uh, how you started focusing on taking care of your body and, and your mind. Well, I will do that. It, in order to do that, I kind of have to go way, way back to when I was about two years old, believe it or not. When I was two years old, I was bitten by a brown recluse spider, which is a, uh, commonly known as a fiddleback spider. And I, I knew something had bitten me. I didn't know what had happened. I went in and showed it to my mom, and it was underneath my left arm. And I showed it to her, and it was already pretty dramatic. There were streaks going out from the center of the, where the bite was. And she knew something was wrong. She didn't know what it was. So she rushed me to the hospital. And the doctor, all he could say was, that's a brown recluse. He's been bitten by, and there's nothing we can do. And in 1962, they didn't have any, I guess, I don't know if it's called anti-venom. They didn't have anything where you could literally give somebody some help. And even today, when you get bit by one of those spiders, I mean, the venom pretty much runs its course uh, for a bit. Uh, they have medicines that can make you feel more comfortable. But anyway, looking back on that, there was nothing they could do. They sent me home, and there was some medicine the doctor told my mom she could give me every night, and that was it. So essentially the instruction was let the venom run its course. And it was in my, the left side of my body. And so over the course of time, I sat, I laid in bed for about a year and a half. And my older sisters would always talk about how they would come in, and I had five sisters, and four of them were old enough to know that their younger brother had been bitten. And they would come into the to the sunroom where my mom used to sew clothes for our kids. And she thought it'd be nice for a boy to keep from going into depression. He would have the sun coming in. It would be a nice atmosphere, and my sure. sisters would come in and, and see me. But as the as the venom was running through my veins, I was getting very, very sick. And so I wasn't well for a long time. But to be sure, the left side of my body had changed. And it was not some, I was not symmetrical. It did not look like the right side of my body. And literally until almost eight or nine years old, I was kind of lopsided. I had a, a very withered left side of the body, arms, hands, shoulders, everything. Uh, was very weak looking, and then the right side looked pretty normal. So I wasn't much of an athlete. I, I didn't know that was a year and a half, because I obviously heard the story before, but I didn't know you were bedridden for a year and a half. Well, bedridden to the point where, yes, I was, and my mom would take me out of the bed every evening. Uh, once she'd gotten the other kids down to sleep, she would give me the medicine, put me back to bed. And they really weren't sure if, I'm, I don't want to be over dramatic about this, but they really weren't sure if I was going to live or not. They sure. Didn't, there was no way of knowing. There was nothing they could do other than try to give me some medicine to make me feel comfortable. But anyway, I did develop, and I've always thought something changed right there. My metabolism had to have changed. I mean, because <laughs> you, be, you became the real life Spider Man. I really sure. did become the real life Spider Man. But but I will say this: we got to um, I got to school, and I I. I I didn't look deformed, if you will, if that's kind of a strong word, but I didn't look that way. But if I took my shirt off, you could definitely see where I didn't look the same on my left side as I did my right side. So I really never gave physical fitness a thought. I didn't, I, I didn't think about, I need to stay in shape. And most kids, five, six, seven, eight, don't think about that. But, but I remember in the start of the third grade, we, at St. Mary's School, we got a new gym teacher, a new physical education teacher. His name was Howard Galt. And Howard, this is August 
basically. And in July, Howard had participated for and competed for the United States gymnastics team at the 1968 Olympic Games in Mexico City. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know what you do after you finish your gymnastics career in 1968, but it's not like you're going to turn pro and make a lot of money. He had to have a job. Those guys are, I mean, the most athletically built people. Really athletic. And Howard was shredded. I mean, you could tell he was, he didn't have an ounce of fat on him. He wasn't a big man, but obviously most gymnasts aren't tall by any stretch. But he was absolutely physically put together. It was unbelievable. And so we, we could tell that initially. And he had a lot of muscles. He was very fast. He was explosive. He could jump. He could do anything you wanted he could do. And so we went through the normal first part of the school year where we were playing dodgeball games and softball and, you know, kickball games and just doing stuff. And finally, Howard, because he was a brand new teacher, so he finally decided he would uh, assess us as athletes to see what he thought he was working with and then uh, start putting us through some real physical activity. And so I remember the first day Howard said, okay, girls were over here doing something. And over here on the boys, he looked at all of us and he said, okay, I want every one of you to drop on your stomach and I want you to do as many push-ups as you can. Count out loud. One, two, three. And when you are exhausted and can do no more, stand up and then tell us how many you've done. And so I did about three good ones and maybe <laughs> two more push-ups after that, but I did five, stood up. I was the first kid in the class to stand up and nobody did less than 10. And most kids were doing 25 or 30. They're really good athletic kids. And so I was looking around going, I- I'm the worst here. <laughs> There's no doubt I'm the worst here. So after the, phys- he did some other physical assessments and after that was through, he pulled me aside and he said, Mike, uh, probably never done push-ups before, have you? And I said, no, I've never done them. I've seen them done. I've never done them. (laughs) He said, well, what, uh, what's the problem? And I said, I don't know. I just, I've I've never considered that a real important thing. So it just never, I don't know. I had never done them before. And he said, well, here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to do bad push-ups. I want you only doing good push-ups. But tonight when you get back home, just before you go to bed, I want you to do as many push-ups as you can do. And it looked like three today was about your max. Is that correct? Yeah, that's it. Do three push-ups tonight before you go to bed and flip over on your back and do three sit-ups or gut crunches. When you get up tomorrow morning, I want you to do three of each again and tomorrow night. And then every morning and night, do three of each for seven days. On the eighth day, add one four push-ups, four sit-ups in the morning and at night. And do that for a week. And just keep adding one every eight or seven days mm-hmm. until you get up to a number you feel pretty good about. Well, <laughs> Little did he know, he, he, this is a precursor for the, the rest of your life here. Well, he didn't know that when I'm all in, or yeah. I'm not good at moderating anything. Anybody that knows me, anybody that's watched me eat ice cream before, <laughs> I'm not good at moderating I'm really good at either eating no ice cream or a whole lot of it. So anyway, it was, I don't know, do the math on how long it would take, but I got to 125 push-ups and sit-ups and just settle in on that number. By adding one each week? Each week, yeah. So, okay, so 
roughly two years. Yeah, it was a about little, two little years. More than Somewhere that. in the fifth grade, probably, wow. I was doing 125, and I just continued doing those all along. I did no other workout other than running, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But this morning, I, I did. I'm, I'm only doing sets of a couple of sets of 25 now um, in the morning and evening. And sometimes I'll do them when I'm watching TV. Sometimes I'll do them here in the office. Yeah. It, it, but another thing I'm going to talk about is arthritis pain that I have and shoulder pain that I have probably from doing all these for 50 years, over 50 years. But So I don't do as many as I used to, but I've never stopped completely doing them with the exception of two times in my life. So Howard changed the way I looked at physical fitness because whether you know it or not, if you do 125 push-ups and sit-ups in the morning and 125 push-ups and sit-ups in the evening, it's hard to get too far out of shape. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to really get, even though your diet needs to be pretty decent, but I, I, I was always in pretty good shape. Yeah. So you start off, because like I said earlier, I didn't know it was a year and a half. That's, that's really severe. So you start off with kind of a handicap as far as your body and, and your health and wellness. But one of, and then you, you meet Mr. Howard and this happens, and then we're going to talk about some running, but I have never heard of anybody who's 60 like you are now who hasn't had the flu. Like you're never sick. You're no. never, ever sick. No, I don't have and we're going to talk about nutrition and stuff as well. But that is the most like unreal thing I've ever heard that you have never been sick. So obviously. Well, no, I've been sick. I've just never actually had the flu, but okay. I've been sick before. But still, I mean, never had the flu. Yeah. Are you kidding me? I've had it like. Maybe four times. Well, I don't maybe know. you should not be in my office. Right now. <laughs> maybe especially this year. But um, I, I've just never heard of that. And so you start off with a handicap, but by the time you're an adult and by the time you start coaching, your health and wellness, you know, your your shape is obviously an advantage for your coaching. So talk us a little bit about your running as well and, and how this progresses from the 125 push-ups and sit-ups. So Howard Galt got me into thinking about physical fitness. I never would have, I wouldn't have considered it, I don't think. And I always will have Howard to thank for that. And so I was doing those. And along about the sixth grade, so about three years into this, uh, we moved from 1123 South 5th Street to 1508 Dover. And that was a big move in my life for two reasons. One, we moved to the basically the sixth tee box at the Ponca City Country Club. Mm -hmm. So I was going to be able to get up early in the morning, walk across to the golf course and start practicing before daylight. But along behind our house, across a big field, was another house. And it was the home of Dr. Gus Kiever, a foot doctor in Ponca City. Gus also played golf at the, at the country club, so I knew him from that, but I just realized he was, and one morning I was early leaving to go to practice, and I looked over there and I saw Gus jogging over this field. And I said, hey Gus, how you doing? And he jogged over and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going over to practice. He said, well, you ever thought about running? And I said, nope, never thought about <laughs> running. I never have thought about running, why do you ask? He goes, well, I run every single morning. And so I gave it some thought that day. And then I asked my dad that night, Dad, can you get me up extra early tomorrow? <laughs> and he said, why? And I said, well, I'm going to go run with Gus Kiever before I go practice. And he said, you're going to what? <laughs> and I said, I'm going to go run with Gus Kiever. So my dad got me up right at 445 or almost 5 o'clock. And here it is, 
almost 50 years later and I, I got up this morning at 4.15. So I'm, that's another thing. That's not healthy. Yeah. But I've been operating on about five to seven hours of sleep for over 50, about 50 years. I, don't, I don't, can't explain that one. Don't even want to try. Yeah. I mean, and you're the most routine person as far as your, your rhythm as well. Like you can, you can set your clock after, you know. Yeah. Your rhythm over I'm there. definitely well my dad helped me with this because he started getting me up boom right at 4 30 or 4 45 and I would get up and I would go across that field back behind Gus's house and I would just wait until Gus came out and usually within five minutes he was there and I was stretching and warming up and Gus Kiever and I ran every morning we would run three miles for six years is mm-hmm. how long I ran with Gus so I became a runner and I was doing my push-ups and gut crunches as well, never lifted a weight, and practicing just as much as I possibly could. My belief was if I'll outwork everybody and I'm in better condition, how could I not be the best golfer? Mm-hmm. Well, that was misguided, but <laughs> it uh, sure. I wasn't the best golfer. But I tried to be. I tried to take physical fitness off the plate, off the table, if you will. I mean, it's not going to be the issue. And during this time, I'd become a real fan of Gary Player, who is probably, well, he was the first, no, he was the second, Frank Stranahan, who was an amateur golfer in the 1950s, great player, was the first physical fitness guy, but he was a heavy lifter is what he did. Gary Player put cardio in there and gut crunches and push-ups and lifting weights. He did everything and nutrition. And was one of the best players in the world and and pretty outspoken about it. Outspoken, all that. So Gary Player became a, a role model for me with respect to that. And there's a story in that. Don't let me forget to tell you about Gary Player. But Gus Keeve and I were running every morning. I was playing competitive golf, working for my dad, getting up, you know, at 4.45 so that I could get the run in, go clean up, get to the golf course by daylight and practice. I would go to school because I couldn't drive a car. And I would go to school with a golf club in my back pocket and grass clippings on my jeans. And that's how I entered the school building every day. And people are, where's he been? What's he been doing? It was just what I thought you needed to do to be great was get out there and sacrifice. But so it started with Howard Galt think, getting me thinking about physical fitness. And then Gus Kiever really inspiring me to be a runner. And I, I just loved it. And so those two people got me thinking about physical fitness. And I mean, here it is 50 years later, and I'm still thinking about it. Mm-hmm. In fact, thinking about it so much that you and I thought this would be a good podcast, because mm-hmm. it's like, you know, usually you're supposed to be in cruise control on your body at 60. I mean, but I don't want to be that I, I have every plan to be in better shape when the guys return on January 10th than yeah. I am today. Yeah, every plan. So let's talk a little bit then about how that helps your coaching coach, because like we've talked about before in this podcast, you're probably in the November of your coaching career, so to speak, and you're going. I mean, I'm everybody that knows you know how hard you work, and you're able to do that because your body's not an issue. Yeah, you have, you know, pain in the in the cold winter mornings, and uh, you're dealing with your things like everybody else. But like I said, you're never sick. You have the stamina for 36 holes easily, like no problem. You have the longest days in college golf, I think, because you're here in the office at 5 every morning, and you're done at 5 or 5.30 or 6 or whenever we're done with practice. So how, yes, you're planning to be better on January 10th when all the boys return. How is that helping your coaching 
and how has it helped your 35-year career, do you think? Well, I think it's helped my coaching because the players can see that I make it a commitment. Yeah. And so when we ask them to do things physical, fitness-wise, uh, well, the coach is doing it too, and you do it as well. Yeah. And Ryan Blagg did it before. So, I mean, it's like, I think it's, an, it's a, uh, it's a watch me, you know, just watch my example, and then... Culture thing. I think so. Yeah. And I think that um, I've been fortunate, very fortunate, to have a lot of people in my life that have guided me that way mm-hmm. and have instructed me in good ways. And those two I just spoke about were two of the ones that, that did it and allowed me to be an example for the players. And I'm not a perfect example. Remember, I like ice cream. <laughs> That's not a perfect example for, for anybody. Sure. For sure. But I, I do think it's uh, important to uh, lead by example. And if if I put physical fitness as a priority, then my players will be more than likely to do the same. Yeah. Okay, so a second ago, uh, you told me to remind you of a Gary Player story related to physical fitness. Very good. Well, you know, Gary had become my sort of physical fitness golf hero, if you will, sure. to, to be sure. And the 1977 U.S. Open was being played at Southern Hills in Tulsa, and I was caddying. And that week I caddied for an amateur golfer from Charlotte, North Carolina, named David Strawn. And David was a really good player. He was a little shocked that I knew his history already. When I was assigned to, to caddy for David, I, the, the caddy sitting next to me says, who's that? And I said, well, he's a really good player. He was runner-up three years ago to, or four years ago to, to Craig Stadler in the USAM. He won the Sunny Hanna the next year. He's a great amateur golfer. And he was going like, how do you know this? So you just signed up to caddy in the US Open and yeah, like we, got a player? Is that how that works? We, in those days, not all the players had, all the players had caddies, most of them, but not all of them. Yeah. And so Southern Hills was going to provide caddies for those players who showed up without a caddy. Oh. And so David didn't have a caddy. I was fourth in line of caddies. He was the fourth player to show up requesting a caddy. In fact, I was a little disappointed because the third player that showed up Right, right ahead of David, for needing a caddy, so it wouldn't be my guy, it would be the caddy to the left of me, was Tommy Bolt, who had won the 1958 U.S. Open at Southern Hills and got a special exemption to play that year, sure. along with Sam Snead. He got to play in that U.S. Open. And I was really disappointed that I didn't get Tommy Bolt, you know. <laughs> and then the next one that came up was David Strawn, and I was really excited because I knew who David Strawn was. Yeah. And so I had a great week caddying for David. But David's good friend was a guy named Joe Inman, who ended up playing the PGA Tour, was playing the PGA Tour at the time, ended up coaching college golf at Georgia State, good mm-hmm. friend of mine. But, so they were good buddies from North Carolina, and they were playing a practice round together. And two things I remember from this practice round. One is we were walking off the 10th tee at Southern Hills. You know, it's, there's a big hill to the right of the 10th tee. Yep. And I'll never forget this. We were walking off the tee, and I almost bumped into Joe, who had stopped his caddy. And I walked around him, and I noticed Joe was getting a golf ball out of his bag. And he runs straight up the hill, about 40 yards up the hill, and there was this little girl in a wheelchair with her mother. And Joe signed the ball, gave it to her, gave her a big hug. I don't think they took a photo. I don't think they had a camera. But that always impressed me. Joe Inman really, I mean, he just saw that little girl in the in the wheelchair and decided to give her a golf ball. I thought that was great. I remembered it. I know that little girl must have remembered that forever. But that's one thing I remember from that practice round. And the other thing was when earlier in the round when we were on the eighth tee box, there was a backup 
of three groups. And that was in the day when it was a three wood or a one iron to, on this eighth that hole. That par three. Either. Yeah, and it's yeah. still, now they back the tee up, it can be that yeah. today, this very day. But So Gary Player and Jack Nicholas are in the group in front of us, and I'm stunned looking at these <laughs> two guys. So there's a group in front of them, so that group had to play, so I had more time to sit here and, you know, just... Let, let your poles get up. Let, yeah, just whatever. <laughs> I was scared to death, and... And Nicholas was my current hero as far as the game. Like kids have grown up with Tiger Woods, I grew up with Jack Nicholas. But Gary Player was my workout hero. I thought Gary Player was an amazing guy. So there was this long wait. And so I, I go over to the bench, and there's, there's two jugs there. One of them has water, and the other has Gatorade. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I want a Gatorade. So I go over there, and it's, uh, it's empty. It's it. They haven't filled it up, so there's no there's no Gatorade in there. And, I'm, oh, and all of a sudden, I hear this in a very South African dialect. I hear this, son, drink the water. That water is much better for you than the Gatorade. Drink the water. Wow, impressive. Uh, Thank you. Dialect there. That's pretty well, I've said that story a thousand <laughs> times. But uh, so Gary Player came over. In fact, the water was kind of low, and he tilted the jug for me so that wow. I could get a drink. And I'm stunned. Gary Player has just, just for one, I, I mainly, I probably had two Gatorades since 1977, <laughs> and only because it's the only thing to drink. Yeah. Every time I see a Gatorade and a water, I'll always go for the water every time because of Gary Player. Wow. Every single time. So I have that memory right there. And then Gary Player hit a one iron right onto the green, and Nicholas hit a three wood short. And I thought, Golly, Gary Player, that it, water gives you strength. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I haven't heard that story. No, I haven't, I haven't told that story in a long time. But yeah, the truth is he literally, he said those words, and I have literally been a water drinker instead of a Gatorade drinker. Gone to the water, water jug. Water don't, jug. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Now, there was a time, quite a bit of time there, where I drank Diet Coke, which I don't do anymore either. Yeah. But that tournament, your, your question was about Gary Player. You know, yeah, he... He was, yeah, I only had one interaction with Gary Player. Yep. You know, I saw Gus Kiever every morning for six years. Uh, Howard Galt every day for three years. So I, those men had a major impact. Gary Player, with one thing he said, had an impact. Now, that taught me a lot of in, in coaching, too. You never know what you're going to say and what kind of an impact it's going to have on a player. Mm-hmm. And it could be the smallest little thing you thought was nothing. And he, all he was doing was telling me, this is the way it ought to be. You drink the water, don't drink the Gatorade. And it stuck with me all these years. Yeah. So I appreciated that very much. But again, I'm going through this time of physical fitness being a major component of what I thought I was as an athlete. Yeah. I didn't add nutrition, true nutrition, until later. But we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, I, I, I do know that physical fitness was very important to me as a player and then later as a coach. So... Uh, let's transition a little bit more back into the running thing because you start running more and more. And in another podcast episode, we've covered your best mile ever. Yeah. But you were a cross-country coach. And how – so going from three miles a day with your neighbor across the field, how did you take that on into when you started actually coaching and teaching about 35 years ago? Well – I had uh, I was still running when I started coaching, so I was still running. I ran until I was about 34 on a daily basis. But to me, it was about sacrifice and discipline and knowing on the first tee, when I look across at my opponent, mm-hmm. that 
He's not in better shape than I am. He hasn't sacrificed the same way I have. He hasn't put the work in that I have. There was a certain amount of confidence I could glean from from knowing that information or believing that information, whether it was true or not, I I believed it. And I think, and I'm in no way comparing myself to a Tiger Woods, but I think that's kind of the way Tiger looked at when he was on the tee, he was by far more talented than I would ever be in running or golf. But he always knew that he'd outwork the guy he was playing against. Mm-hmm. And I, I always thought that was such a big advantage. So as a as a player and then but definitely a later as a coach, I knew if I outworked somebody, they hadn't got me beat there. I didn't want that to be the case. He's outworked me. He's uh, he's given more sacrifice to it than I have. I I do have control over that. Yeah. I can sacrifice if I need to. I can work harder than the next guy if I need to. And I don't have control over the result. So as a coach, it it shows a, a commitment to a discipline that's mm-hmm. very, very important. And, and in my mind, it's not even a, it's a prerequisite. You have to sacrifice. You have to work. So it was just one other way I could show players that I could do that. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, you don't want to step up on the first tee, even as a coach, and feel like we need the chips to fall our way here a little bit because we're at a slight disadvantage. And uh, so I think that's what one of the reasons why so many people respect you is obviously your personal discipline and um, just the way you've treated your body and taking care of your your health through the years is, uh, has kind of shown that. But let's transition into the last little thing uh, on the nutrition part, Coach, because you and your wife, Pam, have decided to, you know, move a little bit different direction with your with your nutrition lately. Talk to us about that and, and how that has kind of helped both of your bodies. You know, you we talk about these winter mornings, kind of you feel it in your bones and you feel the pain here and there a little bit. And so you're kind of trying to turn over another stone on the nutrition. Talk to us about what you guys are doing and, and how you feel like it's helping you. Well, about a year ago, my wife, Pam, is diabetic and she has been since she was age 12. So, um, her kidneys don't function like a normal person's. I mean, they're functioning at a much lower level. And I won't say the percentage, but her percentage of function got pretty low. And a year ago, we both decided that we needed to change our diet to help her out. And so her her kidney function increased greatly, you know, just from after six or seven months of doing that. Um, I wouldn't say we are straight vegans. We're probably not that, but we are vegetarian. and, And I think that the... The diet now, have I had some missteps? Have I had some? Yes, of course. But um, I know this, her kidney function is much better and her ability to control blood sugars is much better than it was before. And I don't know why, but my body feels less arthritic Mm -hmm. uh, since I've increased this uh, intake of fresh fruits and vegetables and less fatty meats and all of that. Since that's gone and I've cr- created a better thing for my body. I know it. I can't explain why or how, but it reminded me, if I had added nutrition, true true um, focus on nutrition 30 or 40 years ago, I, I might have been a really good athlete and in really good shape. I I think what I always tried to do was out-train nutrition, yeah. and that's a really hard thing to do. Yeah. You, you can't, if your nutrition's really bad, you can't out-train it. It just doesn't happen, so... Uh, but I don't know. We both are very happy with it. And yeah, it makes uh, eating out at restaurants a little more difficult, but so does the pandemic. That's made, we don't go out to eat as often. So it does make, it lends us to fixing foods at home a lot more often. Yeah. 
it definitely is, you know, it's probably, I'm not a nutrition expert, but it sounds like it's less inflammatory things uh, in the nutrition for you. And it's probably something at my age that I should take care of more and more because that is definitely one thing that just passes us by at college age or right out of college. It's life is so hectic and you just eat bad, even though you take care of you know, like you did your push-ups and running and stuff. It's kind of easy to neglect. Well, so. I, the the thing about our um, our food in this country, certainly the most convenient and least expensive food is the worst for you. Yeah. And the least convenient and most expensive food is how you should fuel your body. So it kind of works against because right now we are uh, we are very very conscious of our time how much time we have. And so it takes a little longer to, to make the meal. I don't have time, you think in your mind. And our bank accounts, well, I don't really have enough money to eat this way, I should eat that way. So unfortunately, they've, they've kind of geared it toward the easiest way to get food and the least expensive way to get food is bad for you. Yep. That's just fact. Yep. And so you have to make a commitment to it. And I, I really wish I'd done it in a big way years and years ago. I have a sister, Sherry, who's an artist in Taos, New Mexico, who's had about a 40-year commitment now to nutrition, and she's healthy and all, rarely, if ever, sick. The best way to make her sick would be to have her eat fast food for, mm-hmm. for a day. Yeah, it would, right. Her body would revolt if you did. so. And she's been a, a real uh, source for us, a resource for my wife and I in this whole eating different, you know. And gotcha. so while we're not perfect, we are, are certainly making, you know, steps in the right direction toward eating a much healthier diet. And, uh, but anyway, so I'm, I'm thinking that's probably the way I have to eat the rest of my life. Yeah. So what do you see then? Let's go back to these 50 days. What do you see your workout routine and, and staying in shape? What does that look like for you these next few years in your life? Well, I do a machine called the Gauntlet. <laughs> it's a Stairmaster machine that I've started doing. And that, that's another actual part of this story. When I, before I got to Oklahoma State, my last three years in Edmond as a high school coach, I told you I quit running at age 34. I quit because my feet kind of broke down. Mm-hmm. don't really know what happened there. To this day, I have chronic foot pain. Maybe from the running. I'm not really sure why. Maybe there's some arthritis in there. I'm not sure. But... Mike uh, Holder noticed that uh, when I got to work for him in 1997, that I wasn't doing much physical fitness. And what had happened was co- combine that foot pain with two shoulder, a shoulder surgery that I'd had and a shoulder separation that I had. So I wasn't doing as many push-ups, and it even gotten to the point where I wasn't doing very many at all. Mm-hmm. So I'd kind of gotten out of shape. And he said, you need to get back in shape. And I, I agreed really? with him. Yeah, he did. And I'll, I'll never forget <laughs> that. And, and so... I noticed him on this machine called the Stairmaster or Gauntlet. Mm -hmm. And I got up there and man, it threw me right off that machine the first day. It was miserable. And I decided I was going to conquer this machine. And the thing is, the steps just keep coming around you. They revolve and they come towards you. So I learned to time my steps so there was no impact. And so there was no impact on my feet. So that felt okay. And you're climbing up the whole time. You're going up these stairs. So it's working your heart really hard. And you just sweat. I mean, you sweated out your earlobes. You sweated out your elbows. You were sweating everywhere. And I, I like that because, you know, that was good. Yeah. And But anyway, so uh, I got to where I was doing this gauntlet an hour a day, six days a week. Mm. And it was like... No moderation. No there. moderation <laughs> whatsoever. And 
I was losing weight. And Pam kept telling me I was losing weight. And I wouldn't believe her. And we had, we had had a dinner at our house right before we went to nationals. And Charles Howell is in his third year. I'd been doing this for three years. So I was getting pretty thin. And we go and we won nationals that year. And I came back and we, Pam had, uh, had had those photos developed mm-hmm. back in the days when you took photos to a photo <laughs> store and they developed them. And she said, here's the pictures from the team dinner we had. And I'm looking through there and there's Edward Lohr and Landry Mahan, and Mike Holder and... I said, "Who, Pam, who's the guy standing next to Charles Howe? And she looked at him and she says, Mike, that's you. And I said, no, it's not. So I had obviously taken this to an extreme level where too, too many, you know, one hour a day mm-hmm. at level 18, that, that's about, that's 125 steps per minute <laughs> <laughs> for an hour yeah. and uh, six days a week. Well, I looked at that picture and I thought, I can't look like that. But So I cut it down to three days a week for 30 minutes. And I settled in on that for literally 20 years. And the pandemic kind of slowed me down because the gauntlet machines were not quite as available mm-hmm. than the one we had at the facility I would use, but not as often. So I've kind of gotten out of that a little bit. Um, but I think the next 30 days, as your question asked earlier, uh, I'll probably do the gauntlet maybe a couple of days a week. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm doing those. I'm going to do a lot of stretching. I'm going to do a lot of trying to open my body up again. Uh, I just don't feel real. I feel kind of arthritic, if you will. Yeah. So maybe do that over the break. Yeah. Definitely just, some cardio. Just make sure you get enough calories in. Yeah. Just well, eat enough beans. It is a math problem, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's, it is. it's math. So one last question about Mike Holder. Because I know you want to talk to talk about him a little bit on this. Did he stay in shape? And because I, I know you've talked to me about this a little bit, that he told you, "Hey, you need to get in shape." But talk talk to how he handled all this and how his days were usually structured. Well, Mike has a personality similar to mine, only on steroids. <laughs> if he he can go all in on something and all in times ten. I mean, it's just crazy. And so he has considered physical fitness a major component of his coaching career and then as an athletic director afterwards he's always thought it was important and he still gets up in the morning and works out for an hour and a half today mm-hmm. he's 72 and i think you'd have to search far and wide to find a 72 year old in better condition so uh anyway so that was easy because it was plugged right into my job the guy i worked for thought it was an important thing and the team had a workout three or four days a week so it was just kind of built into my schedule yeah. and so when I left Edmond North and went to Oklahoma State, not in great shape at that time because I had spent a couple of years out of working out, if you will. Uh, it was easy to get right back into the mix, and it's been that way here at Baylor as well. The pandemic's kind of kind of thrown things off, but not not as an excuse. I just have to do it differently. But I feel like this break, uh, I would like to get back into the major health mode. And if you combine that with nutrition, I think I might be in pretty good shape when the kids get back on January 10th. Yeah. But let's, I'm going to flip this on you. Mm-hmm. You're a physical fitness freak now, and you didn't used to be. Yeah. When did that start for you? Uh, it was kind of, you know, a lot of things happening all at once. But it was definitely Greg Sands at Texas Tech had a strong impact on me because Coach Sands stays in shape. And um, I really love so many things he does with the program. But one of the things is kind of what you mentioned earlier is setting the culture of uh, – hey, the coach is, you know, staying in shape and he's taking care of his body and his mind and, you know, he's eating the right things. And 
So we had three team workouts each week. And so him and I would both show up as well. And uh, the first year I did the workouts with the team. And it was great because I got to know the team real well. And that was three mornings a week that I got to spend with them that I wouldn't have otherwise if I didn't show up. But uh, Coach Sands would always do his own things uh, because he was training for some races. So he does this... uh, He's done a couple races. That's like the most American thing you can ever think of. It's called Spartan Race. It's like you run and you crawl under something and then you throw this like spear. And it's just like a bunch of middle-aged white guys that like think they're they're tough out there. Uh, I'm giving him a hard time because he, he's done pretty well at those. But anyways, he was training for those. And it kind of inspired me by year two that, hey, I want to do something similar. So... Um, I'm now, I guess you can categorize me as a marathon runner. I ran a marathon right before the pandemic and, um, I just ran an ultra, my first ultra just last week, a 50 K. So I've kind of gotten into running because of the things that you mentioned just now. I mean, it gives me, you know, something privately that I think adds to my coaching because I'm way clearer than I've ever been before, uh, just my mind. Um, I sleep really great. I can take it on the road wherever I want to. So if we're traveling for a tournament, I can hop out and run a few miles. I have a young son. And so it's been great just popping him in the stroller and it's the perfect babysitter. You just run for an hour with him in the stroller. You don't have him running yet? I mean, uh, he's over a year old now. Come on. You know, maybe another year or so. Maybe he'll be running a few, but no, I mean, it's, it's kind of, just what you alluded to, it's it's given me, I think it adds to the culture of the team. I think it adds to myself as a coach. And um, it's an arena for me to just blow off some steam at the end of the day. Or, you know, most of the time I don't feel like running, but after the run, you, you feel great. So, you know, when um, when I was a high school cross country coach, uh, that was right in the middle of when I was still running. Well, actually toward the end of when I was still running, but there's a certain runner's high that I I always knew existed, but I really knew it when I was training with those high school kids because yeah. I was in my early 30s. And there's a lot of difference between an 18-year-old kid and a 33-year-old man that, that body-wise. that just a lot. But I was very, very impressed with that athlete. And I've always thought they were one of the most disciplined athletes in all of sports. Yeah. And it has taught me a lot. You know, I grew up a cross-country skier and I did biathlon until I was 15, so... I, I've always had the base for endurance and uh, I ran the first marathon. I did like a 10 week block and I ran it 328, I think. Um, and so it, it has given me kind of a a goal. Like I, I want to improve on that time and maybe even try to qualify for Boston. Uh, but it has taught me so much about hey, this is another sport. How do I stay injury-free yet get better all the time? And so it's kind of spurred a lot of good thoughts as well, just being competitive in it. And that's what Greg Sands did. That kind of inspired me. Hey, I want to be competitive in something because you learn so much uh, being competitive in another sport or trying to get better with your fitness. That spurs a lot of interesting thoughts for golf. So you know, as a runner, you're, you can't go too many miles right off the bat because it's so high impact. And so how do you build up your miles? How do you manage your mileage with your overall stress, you know, in life and so on and so forth? 
And so then that spurs a lot of thoughts. And you and I have had a lot of good, good conversations about how do we get injured as golfers and why? And what can we learn from other sports? Like, is there a threshold that, you know, maybe not the smartest thing for a golfer is to hit 80 drives on the range after driving it poorly uh, during a round. And so anyways, it, it gives you so many more platforms to kind of add to your coaching and to your life. And so just from my personal thing is I would encourage any coach out there to to uh, just try to get a little bit better. You have 50 days to improve your nutrition a little bit, your overall fitness, and I'm sure it will add to your life and, and your culture and, and your team. Yeah, and all that's well said, and I agree with every bit of it. But I also think that it's important not only to be an example for your student-athletes, but to show them that doing something that's uncomfortable is okay. Yeah. And sh- doing something that uh, is outside your wheelhouse is okay. And doing something to challenge yourself is okay. A lot of times you you try to encourage kids also to do something that's outside of golf mm-hmm. that stretches them, that yeah. makes them different and better. And I, I, I just think that gets overlooked a lot. Yeah. And so, you know, read a book. I, it, could, it could be anything like that. It's just something you wouldn't normally do. And you weren't a runner, but you've become one. Yeah. Okay, so last question for you then, Coach, when we wrap this episode up, since it's an off-season deal, what is uh, your off-season outside of the nutrition and maybe getting back into the gauntlet? What are a couple other things that you're going to do that hopefully will make you a better coach by the time we see the boys again? Well, one, I'm going to spend a lot of time with Pam, my wife, because you know, as a, she's the wife of a coach, yep. and there's a lot of away time. In fact, you and I were doing our schedule for the spring. We were trying to make – we're driving to a lot of these tournaments, and we're trying to see if we can spend one more night in Waco as opposed to being in a hotel room one more night. So I'm going to spend more time with Pam, yep. which would be great. I am going to start – well, I've already started it, but I'm going to work really hard on a new book project that, that I've been working on. I don't I don't make it too much of a teaser, but I, I'm going to try to work, put a couple hours a day in on that to get that further down the road. Again, stay in shape, get in shape, get excited and get rejuvenated for a spring season. Just grateful that it looks like we're going to have one, so that's great. Yep. No, that's awesome. Uh, well, as always, we really appreciate you guys listening. Uh, if you haven't already, if you made it this far in, in the topic episode, you guys are our true fans. So <laughs> we'd love, uh, as always, for you guys to rate the podcast and write a review if you have the time to do so. That'd be greatly appreciated. Uh, we will continue to drop uh, weekly episodes even over the winter. So just stay tuned on us and um, see you next time on Better Than I Found It.